Good to be in God's house with God's people this morning. I'm going to be preaching this morning on the, the creation account from Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to page 1. Let's pray. Father, you are the almighty God of creation. Lord, you are powerful. And Lord, you send your power to help your people. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. And as Keith prayed, we pray that you would give us an undivided heart to thank you and to worship you even as we listen and as I preach. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. Father, that you would correct our wrong ideas about you and your creation. And Father, that you would do all of this for your glory and for our joy. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you to think with me for just a moment, and you can keep your answer to yourself, but try to answer this in your own mind. What are the most important questions in life that can be asked and answered? Now, I fear some of your minds are drifting to the question of what's for lunch, so don't do that. But seriously, in thinking about that question, I want to direct our attention briefly to the story of the biblical character named Job. Now, I know that beginning a sermon on Genesis 1 that way might seem a little strange, but try to hang with me here. You see, in approaching Genesis and thinking about what the book of Genesis is, you might just think by default that it's the first book of the Bible. And of course, in terms of where it is in your Bible, you'd be right. Genesis 1, as I said, is on page 1 of your Bible. But in terms of which book of the Bible was actually written first, you'd actually be wrong if you said it was Genesis. You see, if you carefully study the language and events of the book of Job, you will actually find that Job was written at least 500 years before Genesis. And so we might put it this way. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, the only book of the Bible he had in his hand as he wrote was the book of Job. Now we'll see along the way in Genesis and future sermons, Lord willing, that this is important because Moses assumes some familiarity here and there with revelation that had already been given in the book of Job. For today's sermon, though, the fact that Job is older than Genesis is important because of the fact that Job serves as something of an introduction to the rest of the Bible, especially as it sets up the need for answers to life's most important questions. Answers that are found in the rest of the Bible, but beginning in particular with Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Now, for those who don't know much about the book of Job, what it's most famous for is the intense ways in which the man Job suffers. In the book's opening pages, Job, in a single day, loses all of his livestock, which is all of his wealth. Then his ten children, he had seven sons and three daughters, they all die in one day as the result of a massive windstorm. And then, probably very soon thereafter, he loses his health, being afflicted for an extended period with festering sore boils all over his body from head to foot. It's in the midst of this intense suffering that Job's three so-called friends find out about it and come to see him. When these men come on the scene in Job chapter 2, they are terrified by what has happened to Job. They see this man who is a good man. The text describes him as blameless and upright, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. They see a man who is a wealthy man. Job was the greatest of all the men of the East, it says. And they see a man who loves and cares for his family. You see him performing a priestly role, interceding for them with God and making sacrifices. And these three men think, if this could happen to Job, what could keep it from happening to me? Now, an important thing to know about these friends is that they are super smart in worldly terms. You can tell from their lengthy speeches that Eliphaz is a historian, Bildad is a scientist, and Zophar is a philosopher. And so as they sit with Job, all three of these men use all of their learning and reasoning to try and explain the reason for Job's suffering in ways that allow them to convince themselves that what has happened to Job couldn't possibly happen to them. But with all their wisdom, the best these men can come up with in terms of answering life's most important questions is what's known as the divine retribution principle. 
And this is really popular in just about every religion the world has to offer, including, sadly, in some aberrant forms of Christianity. And basically, that principle is this. The idea that if you do good, God will see to it that you will have a happy and comfortable life. And so if in your life you're experiencing suffering and difficulty, that means you've done bad and God is punishing you. And the long and short of it is that for all the worldly wisdom of the historian, the scientist, and the philosopher, none of them could tell Job the simple but unknowable truth of what was really happening, which we know because it's revealed to the reader in the first two chapters of Job, which is this, that God in heaven had summoned Satan and turned his attention to Job to test him for the purpose of showing that God was right about Job. So these three brilliant men give chapter after chapter after chapter of witty and scholarly prose and even some poetry with a multitude of answers, but none of them can give Job the real answer to what becomes the question of the book, which is how could Job be right with God, and yet God could also be right in the midst of Job's intense suffering. And what all of this drives towards in Job is the text that Rod read at the beginning of the service, Job chapter 28, in which Job concludes that for man to have the answers to life's most important questions, indeed for anyone to know anything at all, truly, we need wisdom from God. Speaking of wisdom, Job says where we read earlier in chapter 28 that man does not know where wisdom is found. It is not found in the land of the living. You can't find it in the depths of the sea or in the heights of the sky with the birds, and it can't be bought with the most valuable things, gold, precious gems in the world. It is not in the land of the living. And then verse 22, he says it's not with the dead. It can't even be found supernaturally. And if you think about it, people in our culture do look to the realm of the dead and to spiritualism for wisdom. Psychic mediums can earn $75 to $300 per hour And the famous spiritualist Deepak Chopra earned over $7 million last year. People are very interested in gaining wisdom from the supernatural realm and from the dead. But verse 22 in Job 28 says, Abaddon and death say, with our ears we've heard a report of it. They say, we've heard of it, but it's not with us. So what is the answer? Verse 23, God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And so, in this way, the book of Job prepares us. It shows us our complete and utter need for the rest of Scripture. There is nowhere else for us to find the answers to our questions. And that brings us to Genesis, in which the truths that answer Job's key question about how God can be right and man can be right at the same time, even when man suffers, those truths begin to be revealed. And chapter 1 of Genesis begins with the first part of that, how God can be right, which begins more fundamentally with who God is. You see, Job and his three friends all suffered from a deficient view of God. And that was remedied by another character, Elihu, and then by God himself in the closing chapters of Job. And the way it was remedied was by putting the God of creation on display for them in all of his power and glory. That is what led Job back to the fear of the Lord at the end of the book. And so that is where Moses starts. And Genesis chapter 1 is with introducing us to the God who made all things. And so now, please read with me our text for this morning. And I won't ask you to stand, since this is almost the whole chapter, from Genesis 1, starting with verse 1. Please read with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, "'Let there be light.'" and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Okay, we obviously have a lot of ground to cover this morning, 27 verses. As we work through the text, I think it's going to help us, as it always does, to focus on what the text focuses on. Namely, Genesis 1 is introducing to us the God who made all things. You see, one thing that is abundantly clear from these first 27 verses of Genesis is that this text is about God. It has God for both its subject, all of the activity is his activity, and for its object. Here in the text, he is the sole recipient and appraiser of the goodness of his creation. Now, we find these truths in Genesis 1 in a way that's a little different from how we would break down other texts. Rather than breaking this text into chunks of verses, our focus here in Genesis 1 is going to be to follow the pattern, kind of to loop around and see it as it goes, as, as there's a repetition in this text. The truths we need to focus on in this text will come mainly through the emphases that Moses brings as he repeats the pattern of God's creating over and over again through the six days of creation. And as we focus mainly on this pattern in chapter 1, I think we'll see jumping out at us from the text three key truths about God that help us to know how to relate to him and to his creation. And you see these on your outline. Number one, God is independent. Number two, God is sovereign. And then finally, God is purposeful. So again, as you pay attention to these truths and how they come at us from the text, keep in mind that this is God introducing himself to us through the activity of creation. Here he is beginning to answer for us those fundamental questions that come up in the book of Job. And in keeping with that purpose, I agree with one commentator who said, I think if you see these truths, 
then Genesis 1 and even the whole Bible will somewhat explode on you in a way that will give God praise and glory. And that's, that's what we're after. So now, the first of these three key truths about God that help us to know how to relate to him and to his creation. Number one, God is independent. Now, what does that mean, that God is independent? It simply means that God is without any need, that God is free. You could also say it this way, God is eternally content. And we catch a glimpse of this starting with the very first words of verse 1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, that's a single word in the Hebrew, the compound word Bereshith, it's the first word in the Hebrew, and that actually serves as the title of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible. And what this word does is it actually sets up something of a boundary marker. In the beginning means in the beginning of time. There was no time and there was no creation before this first moment. The first moment when God, the subject of the verb here, God created. What this precludes immediately, this makes impossible any idea that there was a pre-existing matter that God undertakes in Genesis 1 to form into what we know as creation. No, there was nothing. There was no time. There was no matter. God created everything from nothing. God created, we say, ex nihilo is the term we use for this. But notice what is presupposed here in verse 1. Here we have the beginning of time, and we have the moment of creation. But this is not the beginning of what? Of God. God in his eternal existence is presupposed. And we learn more about this from later revelation. Jesus especially speaks to it in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. But before we get to that, there's something to note about the word God, the way it's written in the Hebrew text. You see the word God in Hebrew, the word Elohim, is plural in number. There's reason to think that its plural form at least hints to the plurality in God. And the likelihood of this is supported by a far clearer indication of God's plurality. If you look a little further down at verse 26, when God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. By far, the best way to understand the plural forms of the verb and pronoun there is to understand that God is clearly speaking as a plurality, as more than one person. And so, there is an apparent plurality in God hinted at even from verse 1. And of course, this accords perfectly with Jesus' description of his eternal existence with the Father from John, John 17. Verse 5 there, Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And as he continues in that same prayer in verse 24, he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in the beginning, God, in whom there is a plurality, created. And we'll come back to the last part of verse 1, but to finish this thought, let's look ahead for a moment to verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And you'll, pro you'll notice, probably no matter the translation in front of you if you're looking at a Bible, that the Spirit of God is capitalized here, which is very appropriate. That construction only ever refers in the Hebrew to the Spirit, or less frequently, the wind of God. And in this case, the verb translated moving in the NAS, although actually hovering in the ESV is a better translation, that verb does not reflect the action of the wind. Rather, this is the action of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, hovering over the new creation, ensuring its future development. And so we have discernible indications of God as a trinity in these opening verses of Genesis. Now again, what we're seeing here is that God is independent. And this, theologically, is the reason God is independent, that God has no need, he doesn't need us, he does not need the creation. The reason that God is the eternally blessed and happy God 
is because God is not just the Father, but God is also eternally the Son and the Spirit. You see, God has enjoyed fellowship and glory and love and joy in Himself for all eternity. That's an eternal reality that creation is just coming in on in verse 1 of Genesis 1. Friends, what we need to see here is that God does not create out of some sense of need. There's an erroneous view that sort of pictures God in eternity past in his mansion in the sky, thinking in terms like this. And I'm saying this is a wrong way of thinking about God. That the Trinity was in heaven thinking, oh, if we just had the pitter-patter of little humans to run about in the mansion, we would be so much more fulfilled, we'd be so much more happy if we just had people. We need people. That's what would fulfill me. No, beloved. God is the blessed God, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy. In his infinite and perfect love and joy in the Trinity, God is eternally content. And it is from his great contentment and his own great joy that he creates. As Michael Reeves puts it in his excellent book, Delighting in the Trinity, as he peers into the same reality we're trying to investigate here in his chapter entitled, What Was God Doing Before Creation? He writes this, This God simply will not fit into the mold of any other. For the Trinity is not some inessential add-on to God, some optional software that can be plugged into him. At bottom, this God is different. For at bottom, he is not creator, ruler, or even God in some abstract sense. He is the Father, loving and giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. A God who is in himself love, who before all things could never be anything but love, having such a God happily changes everything. Reeves here answers an important question. What difference does it make to us that God is independent? And as he says, this fact indeed changes everything for us. You see, if God created everything freely, not out of any need, if he was already content and blessed and happy in himself, in his eternal and holy love, then it is not up to us. It is not up to our existence to satisfy any need in him. And you might think, I would never think of God like that as though he needed me for his own fulfillment. But don't we sometimes? Like he's sitting up in heaven looking down on us and thinking, oh, I just wish they would give me a good praise song or a good sermon or a good quiet time or a good whatever. That they would just give me something like he needs these things from us or demands them of us. But that is not how it is at all. In fact, it's the other way around. Because God is happy and independent and free and he creates from that freedom, he is free to impart his joy and love and contentment to us, which is, of course, what the scripture teaches. And it's not just creation in which God is free and independent. It is in salvation which is implied in 1 Timothy 1.11, to which I alluded a moment ago, where Paul refers to the gospel as the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It is from his fullness, from the overflow of his eternal blessedness, from his eternal happiness, it's from his own sufficiency that God gives the gospel, that he gives salvation. Beloved, our existence is free, and God's salvation is free, because God is independent and free. Salvation is all on him. It is all paid by Jesus, God incarnate, on the cross. And he can freely and graciously grant eternal life, eternal blessing, because he is in himself eternally blessed. God is independent. But he's not just independent. The second truth we find in Genesis 1 that helps us understand how to relate to God and to his creation is number two. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Look again at verse 1. Notice what it says God creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That wording, the heaven and the earth, is what's called a murism, a poetic way of expressing the, the totality, the whole of something. Like saying someone does something day and night is to say that they're always doing that thing. 
What this means is that verse 1 is really a summary statement of everything that comes through verse 27. Another way to say it, in the beginning, God created everything. So as we saw already, there was nothing in existence other than God prior to this first moment described in verse 1. And then in verse 2, we saw the Holy Spirit is hovering over the unformed creation as God is about to begin his creative work in verse 3. And here is where we need to start paying attention to the pattern and what it tells us about God and his creation. Look at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. It is here that we learn for the first time that the means of creation was simply the word of God. That first verb, and he said, sets the tone for this emphasis throughout the chapter and even throughout the rest of the Bible. For example, and the examples could be endless, Psalm 33 verse 9 says, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And here in Genesis 1, notice the repetition of these words in the successive days of creation, showing God creating in the same way Hebrews says he upholds all things simply by the word of his power. Look at the text. Verse 3, then God said, and there was light. Verse 6, then God said. Verse 7, and it was so. Verse 9, then God said, and it was so. Verse 11, then God said, and it was so. Verse 14, then God said. Verse 15, and it was so. Verse 24, then God said, and it was so. You see the pattern over and over again. He speaks the word and light appears. He speaks and dry land. He speaks and plants and animals and birds and fish. He speaks and sea monsters. All of creation does his bidding. All of creation is subject to the absolute authority of God's word. As one commentator puts it, he creates with an astonishing ease. We're talking about everything that exists, every mountain, lake, river, bird, fish, every animal, and God does it so perfectly and with such ease. I tell you, it's a bit of a struggle for me just to get the kids breakfast to the table and to remember the spoons. <laughs> it is absolutely mind-bending to try to think about the complexity and the amount of information involved in the creation of all things. In covering most of chapter 1 this morning, there's not a lot of time to spend on apologetics, and this text is not primarily about apologetics. But let me just point out briefly that the genetic program of a higher biological organism consists of about 1,000 million bits. That's a billion bits of information for just one organism. Friends, honest scientists, even secular ones, have to acknowledge the impossibility that this complexity and this information could have generated spontaneously. They know that all of this information had to be programmed in each life form from its very inception, and only as the product of a supremely intelligent mind. Just one implication of this, as you might expect, is that plants and animals could not have evolved from one another. God created each and every kind of plant and animal instantaneously by the power of his authoritative word. Moses seems to go to great pains to methodically explain that this was the case, that each kind of plant and animal was created individually after its kind. Notice this same language repeated ten times, starting first in verse 11, after their kind, and then twice in verse 12, after their kind, and then verse 21, after their kind, after its kind, twice in verse 24, after their kind, twice in verse 25, after their kind, and then again, after its kind. God created each kind of plant and animal individually after its kind. One more thing to note along these lines, as far as the timing of the days of creation, the construction of the Hebrew here does not allow for any other understanding than that these were six 24-hour days in which God created complete, or completed creation. There is no gap 
and there is no grammatical or syntactical possibility of a gap anywhere in these verses. And in beautiful harmony with this fact is that our observation of creation, even the most sophisticated scientist's observation of creation, does not require any adjustment, any hermeneutical tricks in this text. The text of Genesis 1 is plain and straightforward in what it says and in what it means. You see, friends, just like Job's friends weren't there to witness the events in heaven that governed what was happening to Job on earth, there was no scientist, no historian, and no philosopher there to observe these first moments of creation. And therefore, the wisest man on earth cannot know how creation happened or how long it took or how old the earth is apart from God telling him. But, thank God, he has told us here in Genesis 1 so that we can have true and certain knowledge of how all of this came to be. And this, beloved, is exactly how everything came to be. God commanded it, and it was so. Repeatedly, in all of its glory and complexity and astounding beauty, God said, and it was so. And by faith, we believe it. As the writer to the Hebrews says explicitly, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. From nothing, ex nihilo, instantaneous, powerful creation. God is the sovereign creator of all things. And friends, this reality of the sovereign and powerful God of creation should give us incredible comfort in at least two ways if we believe it. First, we, like Job, although hopefully not quite as severely as Job, we see that reality and even our immediate circumstances, let alone the massive creation that extends to the far reaches of the universe, even just our day-to-day circumstances can seem so powerful that they might just overwhelm and crush us in a moment. So is there not comfort in the fact that all things are created and governed by a God who simply, by his all-powerful word, commands the powerful oceans and galaxies and volcanoes and earthquakes and heartbreaks and disappointments and physical pain to say with full sovereign authority thus far and no farther? Secondly, for the full measure of comfort God intends for us, we need this reality to extend in our minds and in our hearts all the way to the fact that the same God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, if God has the power and sovereign authority to create all things and to uphold that creation according to his perfect divine plan by the power of his sovereign word, then he also has the power and authority to command the spiritually dead to become alive and to keep us alive by the power of his word. Friend, if you're a Christian today, it is not because of anything in you. Rather, as James says, in the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Furthermore, You're staying a Christian and being received one day to eternal glory doesn't depend ultimately upon you either. It depends on the sovereignty and design and power of the same God whose creative power and authority is on display for us in Genesis 1. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Friends, God is sovereign. He is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of all things, including salvation in Christ, simply by the power of his word. 
So God is independent, God is sovereign, and finally, number three, God is purposeful. God is purposeful. He is purposeful in everything that he does. And this key truth, again, jumps out at us from this text. Look again at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. Now think for just a moment about God's intention, God's purpose, with the order in which he's doing things here. What day is this? Day of creation. You see the summary in verse 5. This is only the first day of creation. What day does God create the sun? Not until the fourth day, way down in verse 16. What does this tell us? Well, at the risk of mixing our sermon points, let me just point out that this serves again to reinforce God's independence. You see, God does not depend on the sun for light. God himself is light, and he commands the light independent of the sun or moon or stars. And even the boundaries of a day and the timing of an hour do not depend on the sun or the earth's rotation relative to it but on God who speaks even time into existence. This fact is evident from the account in Joshua, which we also believe by faith, that the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. The progress of the day, of the hours, did not depend on the progress of the sun in the sky. And you might recall from the book of Revelation in the final pages of Scripture that time will go on for all eternity. There will be daytime in which the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. But there will be no sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So if you think about it, the end is very much like the beginning. So yes, God is purposeful here, and he intends to convey to us throughout Genesis 1 his great driving purpose in creation. And it's so simple. Look again at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, it could have stopped there, and that would have given us all we needed to know about our first two points relative to the light. God is independent. He doesn't depend on light. He creates it. And he's powerful. He creates light just by the power of his word. But the description doesn't stop there. Look at verse 4. God saw that the light was good. Here again, we have another crucial piece of the pattern that persists throughout Genesis chapter 1. God is creating not just to create. He has no need of creation. God is creating not just as a raw expression of power. No, God takes a moment here, and God does the same repeatedly throughout the days of creation to express his own personal enjoyment of the goodness of what he's doing. Again, don't miss the pattern. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, he separates the dry land and the seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, he creates the plants and trees, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, the sun, moon, and stars, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, the sea creatures and birds, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, the beasts and cattle, and God saw that it was good. And then, coming after our text today, after God finishes with the creation of man, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Here again, we can't help reinforcing our first two points. God is independent and God is sovereign. In the words of the text, he alone is the one considering and enjoying the goodness of all that he is creating in this succession of six days. But realize also that he is having Moses write it down for Israel, and you can know this morning that he had Moses write it down so that you could rejoice in the goodness of God's creation. Oh, friends, may it not be that our hearts are too dull or too cold to catch a glimpse of the incredible glory and goodness of God on display in creation. This is something that King David understood and rejoiced in greatly in Psalm 19. And go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We'll be there for a few, a few moments. <clears throat> David writes in Psalm 19, 
The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Now notice there an apparent contradiction. On the one hand, day to day pours forth speech. On the other, there is no speech, nor are there words. What David is saying is that creation is communicating something to us, but it's doing so without words. We need Scripture, of course, to tell us that creation is good and that it is communicating something that is supremely good because all of creation is declaring the glory of God. David continues, verse 4, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Notice how the sun is personified here, and how in its personification it is so eager to declare, by performing the exact function for which God created it, the glory of its creator. It says, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Friends, God is purposeful. He creates with purpose. He has displayed his goodness in creation for all to see. None is hidden from it. Looking back again at the text of Genesis, we already saw God's repeated affirmation. It was good, it was good, it was good. And we saw that the first thing God called into being was the light. In verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. In verse 4, God saw that the light was good. Notice, however, what God does not call into being and what he does not affirm as good. Darkness. Verse 4, darkness simply is. And God separated the light from the darkness. Whereas the light he had called into being, the darkness was simply over the surface of the deep at the first moment of creation in verse 2. Now we need to be careful not to say too much here. The text does not indicate that darkness or evil exist only outside of what God created. God's creation does include darkness, and he is completely sovereign over it, darkness and all. But we also need to be careful not to say too little, even so that we note what the text does not say. It is clear in the text that God is not credited with darkness, and even close to the same way in which he is credited with light. And carefulness is in order here, lest we impute to God something that Scripture says elsewhere is impossible, as in 1 John 1, 5, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, part of the reason I press this point is that it has to do not only with darkness, but also with sin. And to that end, something similar to the apparently spontaneous presence of darkness in creation is found later in Ezekiel chapter 28, when God addresses Satan as the power behind the king of Tyre. There God says to Satan, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. You see, just as God says unrighteousness was found in Satan, so we might say that at the moment of creation, darkness was found there also. Again, what we're seeing here from the account of creation, and now we note, even in the carefulness of the wording, what God is saying and in what he is not saying, we're seeing that God is purposeful and that his purpose in creating is to put his glory and goodness on display even in contrast with darkness. Now, thinking about that contrast, think again with me about the personification of the sun that we saw just a moment ago from Psalm 19. With just the glory of God in view, the sun is said to be so eager to fulfill its purpose of glorifying God that it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. 
But in terms of the contrast, I can't help but think of another place where creation is personified. But in this case, it's a lament. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Beloved, that is the reality we find ourselves in. And this is the reality Job and his friends found themselves in. And oh, the confusion as they just observed the way the world was around them without insight into God's plans and purposes as they were being worked out in heaven in ways that Job and his friends had no clue about. And so again, in answer to the questions and circumstances that Job so painfully brings to our awareness, God is here in Genesis 1 introducing himself to us. And beloved, we need to see this. God is purposeful. God created from his independence and according to his all-powerful sovereign authority for the good purpose of putting his glory and goodness on display. And we do not see it yet in Genesis 1, but it is certainly consistent with what we have seen, that God's good and sovereign purpose of glorifying himself in the creation will not be thwarted by the subsequent fall and curse, which we will come to in later parts of the Genesis narrative. Paul writes again in Romans 8, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, Job, of course, did not know these truths in this kind of detail that the Apostle Paul gives. But the pain and the pressure of his circumstances led Job to ask the hard questions and even to begin to hope for the future realities that are secured in future revelation, beginning with these truths that are established in Genesis 1. And this is the beginning of that truth. The God who created all things is independent, sovereign, and purposeful. In his purpose, he is good. In his independence, he is free. He is free to share his goodness through and with his creation. And in his sovereignty, he will ensure that his good purpose will not fail. So, beloved, how will you respond to this God who made all things? If I could summarize with one word where God wants to lead your heart by what he's revealed here, it would be the word surrender. Turn with me in closing to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. When we get to this point in Job's story, he has just received four full chapters of God speaking directly to him, challenging Job with this reality of God as the creator of all things, in light of the fact that Job is a man of few days and minimal knowledge. And in the end, what we see here is that Job comes to the point of surrender. Look at verse 5. Job says these words to God. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Beloved, this is the heart God intends to lead us to by revealing himself as the independent, sovereign, and purposeful creator of all that there is. This is why he gives us this word. So that we can see, like Job, that although the world's wisdom cannot answer life's most important questions, it is the truth about God and who he is as creator that will bring us back to the fear of the Lord and back to the simple trust that God will be faithful to make all things right in his own time and in his own way. 
Now, it may be that how this could be is still a mystery to some of you who are hearing my voice. But what for Job and even for Moses as he wrote Genesis was still somewhat mysterious, God has made clear to us through the details of later revelation. Friends, the invitation is here for you to not only know that God's purpose will stand, but to know the details of how you can be part of that unshakable purpose through your full and free forgiveness even today. You see, and you see this everywhere you look, God's creation was not incorruptible. As I read from Romans 8, God's creation was subject to futility. It was subject to curse because of my sin and because of your sin. But God, because he's rich in mercy, took on himself in his own sovereignty and independence to pay the full cost of restoring sinners to himself. Friends, when God put Jesus on the cross, he demonstrated further his independence and sovereignty and purpose. He needs nothing from us. He gives everything to us, including the only way for us to be forgiven. And so all that remains for you, if you've not already accepted this free invitation, is to turn from your wisdom and from the futility, and you know it's futility, just look around. To turn from the futility of what your heart has clung to in this world of things that are passing away and come. Be restored by faith to this independent, sovereign, and good God who made all things so that you might enjoy the fullness of his joy for all eternity to the praise of his glory and grace. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you, and we know that our words are small and halting, to thank you for your wisdom revealed to us here in the first pages of Genesis. Father, we stand in complete need of your wisdom supremely for salvation. And Lord, we thank you that you are the God who is independent and sovereign and purposeful and has provided all things for your glory and for our joy. We pray, Lord, that you would seal these things to our hearts by your Spirit and that you would lead each of us to that heart of surrender before you, that we might know you and the fellowship of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.